This is Global Tennessee, news analysis and commentary from the Tennessee World Affairs Council in Nashville. Global Tennessee is produced in association with the Center for International Business at Belmont University and the International Business Council of the Nashville Area Chamber of Commerce. The World Affairs Council is a nonpartisan, nonprofit educational association, and the views expressed on Global Tennessee are those of the participants. Welcome to the Global Tennessee Podcast. I'm Pat Ryan from the Tennessee World Affairs Council. Today we're talking with uh, our guest, Dr. Susan Haynes, Assistant Professor of Political Science at Lipscomb University, author of a book titled Chinese Nuclear Proliferation, How Global Politics is Transforming China's Weapons Buildup and Modernization, and a member of the Tennessee World Affairs uh, Council Board um, of Directors. Thank you for uh, for joining us, Professor Haynes. I'm glad to be here. And we are uh, we are beginning a year-long program at the World Affairs Council looking at existential uh, issues, uh, the two uh, potentially uh, threatening issues uh, that uh, could affect humanity in the gravest sense, uh, the dangers of the use of uh, nuclear weapons and the effects of climate change. Uh, and our World Affairs Council is examining both of these issues in the coming program year with a focus on nuclear threats over the next six months. So it's great that we have uh, Dr. Haynes with us here to uh, explore the questions of uh, nuclear weapons, uh, strategic nuclear weapons among the major powers in the world. Um, Susan, you're originally from Knoxville, Tennessee? Yes, that's correct. And you, where did you go to school? I went to University of Tennessee in Knoxville um, and then went up to George Mason, um, south of D.C., for my master's and my doctorate degree. And now you're an assistant professor of political science at uh, Lipscomb University here in Nashville and uh, author of uh, uh, a very specialized book on, <laughs> on Chinese uh, nuclear weapons modernization. Uh, and uh, I, I suggest uh, to those specialists who want to know more about uh, that topic that you uh, you look for that on Amazon. It's available for sale, and I'm sure will be uh, very insightful as to what's going on with what some people refer to as the forgotten nuclear power. So as we launch uh, this effort uh, to look at existential threats dubbed the TikTok Project, uh, we're pleased to have you uh, with us to talk about nuclear weapons associated with the world's premier powers. Uh, first, can you can you give us a primer on uh, strategic nuclear weapons uh, as a foundation for our conversation? For example, uh, can you give us the context for current nuclear arsenals and, and doctrines, uh, perhaps starting with uh, what is a triad and, and uh, talk a little bit about the strategies employed by major nuclear weapon states? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it can it can all seem a little jargony if you don't know some of those words, so it's always good to kind of provide context. Um, well, when we're talking about the major uh, nuclear powers, you're, you're usually talking about those that are um, that were your original nuclear powers that were in their nuclear nonproliferation treaty. So recognized nuclear powers, meaning France, Great Britain, Russia, China, and the United States. Um, and then among those, there's kind of a category of powers that have um, more robust nuclear forces that have uh, what we're calling nuclear triads. And that means that they have they can deliver nuclear warheads 
via sea-based platforms, air-based platforms, or land-based platforms, meaning something like um, intercontinental ballistic missiles or short-range missiles, or strategic bombers via the air or submarine-launched ballistic missiles. So they can do it on all three arenas. And and uh, what what sort of strategies do the major nuclear weapon states employ when they configure their their nuclear forces in in terms of the mix or the 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 numbers the quantity, quality, those, those kinds of issues. Yeah, so there's really, I mean, there's a lot of different names for strategies. I like to think of them in terms of a spectrum. Um, so at the very, very beginning, you have something kind of akin to existential deterrence, an existential deterrence strategy where you are really opaque in your nuclear strategy. That's when you have really few numbers, um, and that's something kind of akin to uh, what new nuclear powers do. But then as you advance, um, a nuclear power can get more confident in its abilities and in its capabilities and in being able to communicate that. Um, So I believe the next step, in my view, would be minimum deterrence. Um, which is a little misleading, but minimum generally is categorized as having just enough nuclear weapons to deliver a second strike so they can absorb a first strike, um, have enough survivable weapons to then deliver a second strike. And nations that subscribe to that strategy generally think that if they can just threaten a second strike, that is enough that is enough to keep them uh, protected against foreign aggression. So again, that's minimum deterrence. And then you kind of move up a level to uh, what we call limited deterrence. And limited deterrence would be when a country is looking for more flexible options. So they, the goal of limited deterrence isn't necessarily just to deter enemy aggression or have a second strike capability. It is to be able to contain um, or de-escalate a conflict and use more flexible, use their weapons in a more flexible manner. Um, So that means you're going to have more weapons. That means you're going to have more capabilities in order to do that. Um, You also would reserve the right to use nuclear weapons to end a conventional conflict if you are having limited deterrence. Um, and then, like, the next rung up would be maximum deterrence, um, also kind of dubbed massive retaliation, where you believe in the numeric superiority of nuclear weapons. And the threat is not, we will strike you if you strike us, or we will strike you in a conventional conflict, but we, if you strike us, you will be annihilated. And that's kind of the, the maximum threat, if you will. So how does a, a country like uh, the United States and, and uh, the Soviet Union in, in the Cold War, how do you determine how big an arsenal you need? I guess, I guess the uh, numbers depend on the strategy you, you wish to employ. The- yeah, so I'd say first off, it, it depends on the strategy you want to employ um, because with minimum deterrence, it doesn't necessarily even matter who your adversary is and how many nuclear weapons they have, because you just need the bare minimum to be able to, again, strike back. But with limited deterrence, if you want to be able to de-escalate a conflict, then it becomes much more relevant how many nuclear weapons your rival or enemy has. Then you're starting to look at the numbers of your enemy and trying to kind of match capabilities a little bit more precisely. 
Okay, well, let's uh, talk a little bit about uh, the doomsday clock, which uh, seems to get advertised every January when they check out the clock at the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists. How, uh, how is that helpful? What, what's the construct there, and how is that helpful for people to understand the threat posed by uh, nuclear weapons and also by uh, the threat of climate change since they now incorporate both into their calculation? Yeah, I think it's tremendously helpful. Um, you know, it's it's a very powerful symbol. Um, I think that nuclear weapons, especially in the new generation, um, they can get lost in the conversation. I mean, North Korea, most certainly the conversation surrounding North Korea has brought that back. Um, but it's still not as as pertinent to everybody's everyday lives as it was during the Cold War. Um, and that's why I think that it is really important to impress upon people um, just what a huge threat nuclear weapons do pose. Um, and not to counter that against terrorism, but terrorism, for instance, has really been the landmark political um, idea of, I guess, two generations now, ever since 9-11. Um, and they think of nuclear weapons, or the younger generations can think of nuclear weapons as kind of, oh, that was my my parents' problem, right? Um, without really understanding that they're still around and truly understanding the magnitude of just what one nuclear weapon um, can do. And again, not to, to minimize in any way the um, devastation of a terrorist attack, but those are two very, very different things. Nuclear weapons have the ability to blow the entire planet up. Sure. Um, and, and that's something that I think that is sometimes lost on younger generations. And the, the doomsday clock tries to um, put that alarm um, back in people and press the importance of, of this issue. And and I'll remind our listeners that we had a conversation uh, with Joe Serencioni from the Plowshares Fund. He was here in Nashville in uh, February talking to groups, and he pointed out that uh, the clock is now stuck at two minutes to midnight, which is the closest it's been to midnight since uh, the U.S. exploded a hydrogen bomb back in the 50s, and the uh, the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists who, who keep the clock I refer to that now as an abnormal normal. Um, and, and you're right, a lot of people sort of think that these are your father's issues, but uh, with the situation in the world, uh, new confrontations taking place, and we're going to talk a little bit about how countries, the major nuclear powers, uh, are modernizing. Um, it's, it's something that we all should be more aware of. Let's, uh, let's turn to uh, our first case, China, uh, which is the major focus uh, of your scholarship. Uh, tell us about the history of the Chinese nuclear weapons program. Um, when, when did they get a weapon and, and how did they get on the, the nuclear map? Yeah, so they first tested their nuclear weapon in 1964, um, much to the surprise of the international community. It really took everybody kind of aback um, because prior to that, Mao Zedong had, had kind of equated nuclear weapons to paper tigers. So people did not necessarily think that the Communist Party was investing in that manner and trying to um, become a nuclear power. Um, so, so they came up on the map, um, they tested their first nuclear weapon, it was atomic bomb, and then very, very shortly thereafter uh, did a hydrogen bomb as well. Um, 
And in terms of why they did it, I mean, it was looking at the looking at the threats that were posed around them uh, vis-a-vis at that time the Soviet Union, because they had kind of split off with the Soviet Union uh, prior to that point or right around that point, and then the threat that they saw posed by the United States and said, "No, we do need to have these." Um, when they when they came out and did the first test, it was a little unusual because. Um, the statements that were made were kind of out of this regret of we don't really want to do this, but we have to do this. We feel compelled to do this. We still wish there were not nuclear weapons in the world. Um, we'd be willing to roll this back if we can. Um, and then we can talk about kind of how that rhetoric has, has changed since then. And, and in, the, um, uh, in, in the history of their program, what, what sort of limits? Were they uh, under the same provisions as the United States and the, the Soviet Union back there in terms of the nonproliferation treaty or test bans or any sort of limitations? Or was it just the doors wide open and they, uh, they didn't need to comply with any international regulations or, or uh, conventions? Well, not when they very first tested, um, they were not a party of any of the treaties. Um, they became a member of the Nuclear Nonproliferation Treaty in 1992. They acceded to that treaty along with France as the last two nuclear powers um, to do so. Um, but again, you know, the Nuclear Nonproliferation Treaty doesn't really commit them to anything except for this um, far off vision of we will disarm at some point. We believe that uh, disarmament is a good thing. Um, and so they kind of committed in that regard. The Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty, they also signed but never ratified, just along with the United States. Um, so they did that once they were comfortable with the weapons that they had. Um, it's noteworthy that they've had much, much, much fewer tests than the United States or the Soviet Union, and they kind of uh, pride themselves on that fact that they got where they are on fewer tests. Um, and then when, again, they were comfortable, they uh, signed but did not ratify the CTBT, the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty, um, and, and stopped their testing. Now, let's let's reflect back on uh, the history of the era. They were as concerned about the Soviet Union as a threat to them as they were about the United States. What, what kind of delivery systems did China develop in, in the early years of their program? Yeah, so, well, the very first tests were conducted uh, via strategic bomber. Um, but generally, that's not considered one of their viable platforms now. We think now that those have a conventional mission. So a lot of their resources and energy were put into land-based forces, meaning intercontinental ballistic missiles, uh, mid-range ballistic missiles, and the like. Um, so initially, those were silo-based, uh, stationary um, missiles, and then since then those have been modernized to be road mobile missiles um, so that they can be more survivable, uh, less easily detected. I'd like to uh, just remind everybody we're, uh, we're talking with Professor Susan Haynes from Lipscomb University. Uh, she is an expert on Chinese nuclear weapons and modernization and global strategic nuclear warfare issues. Uh, so we're talking uh, in the context of the World Affairs Council's TikTok project, which is looking at the existential threats that uh, the world faces. Uh, I'd also like to remind everyone that uh, if you haven't uh, heard 
our last episode on Global Tennessee. Uh, we spoke with Janet Napolitano, the former Secretary of Homeland Security, on her book, How Safe Are We in the Post-9-11 Period. So take a listen uh, to that on uh, our podcast, uh, listening at soundcloud.com slash TNWAC. Again, we're talking with uh, Professor Susan Haynes from uh, Lipscomb, and uh, she is the author of uh, Chinese Nuclear Proliferation, How Global Politics is Transforming China's Weapons Buildup and Modernization. And, and Susan, tell us, how is China's nuclear program uh, being transformed? Yeah, well, you mentioned um, in the introduction that people have referred to China as the forgotten nuclear power. So that was about, I want to say, 10, 15 years ago that that kind of phrase was used um, in today's climate, when people are talking a lot about North Korea, they're talking a lot about Iran, uh, sometimes people talk about, uh, you know, potential arms race between India and Pakistan, China kind of drops off the map um, in conversation. Sometimes people don't even know that it's a nuclear power. Um, and it is. It's a pretty formidable nuclear power. And it's become well, and, more and most so. of the conversation about China is about uh, trade and tariffs and absolutely a little bit about the national security issues related to Taiwan and the South China Sea. But you're right. We, you very rarely hear what is your cup of tea, the Chinese <laughs> nuclear program. Yeah, you don't. And, and you know, that's that's quite strategic on their part. Um, so China has doubled its nuclear force. So it's it's doubled its military budget over the past 10 years, but it's doubled its nuclear force over the past 20 years. During that same time, the United States and Russia have decreased their forces by 90%. France has gone down unilaterally. Britain has gone down unilaterally. So China is pursuing a different course of action. Um, it is not or has not raised a lot of eyebrows um, up until really, really recently um, because they've done it somewhat gradually. Um, and they've had a relatively small nuclear arsenal. So now their arsenal is starting to creep upwards of up to 300. And when they reach that mark, they're going to exceed France. So they've already passed Great Britain. They're going to pass France um, as France continues to go down. And then you're going to have, you know, them being closer to the United States and Russia, still very, very far behind um, in terms of numbers. But what has gotten a little bit more attention as of late is the types of weapons that they're building um, across all three platforms um, and the capabilities that they're trying that are three, actually The three quite platforms being the triad of yes. so sea-based, land-based, air-based. Mm -hmm, they're doing new submarines. They're doing new submarine-launched ballistic missiles. They're doing m new intercontinental ballistic missiles. Um, and they are going to do uh, a new stealth bomber, the H-20, as well. What else uh, should we expect out of uh, the Chinese nuclear program? Uh, will they likely uh, become a party to uh, international treaties on limitation, or are they are they arguing that they're they're trying to catch up with their their threatening uh, adversary potential adversaries? So you know they've always held the position um, that. United States and Russia share a special responsibility in disarmament and leading the way because they were the first two powers that kind of started it all. Um, that's still kind of the party line, if you will. Uh, I believe maybe a month ago, Trump tweeted something to the effect of, hey, China, we want you in the negotiations. Um, we, If we're going to do something after the New START treaty, we think we need to include China. Um, and the response from China was like, nope, still, we're, til we're still too small. Um, 
and again, that's been the position. Um, so I don't expect that they would be included um, voluntarily anytime soon. Um, but I will also say, kind of in, in your last question about what it is that's driving this increase, it's very, very clear that what's driving the increase is the United States. Um, it, when you look at their weapons, you look at the capabilities that they're doing, it is a direct tit-for-tat security dilemma with the United States, specifically in regards to missile defense and how they feel that that um, undermines their security. And so to the extent that the United States and Russia are you know, going down on their nuclear arsenals, that to China is not enough because we're doing other things that still undermine their security. Um, and they feel as that they need to increase their arsenal for that. Well, after the break, we're going to get into the U.S. Uh, modernization and the U.S. strategic uh, position uh, regarding nuclear weapons and uh, missile defense. Uh, but before we take a break, let's uh, talk a little bit about uh, some things that you do with the World Affairs Council uh, at Lipscomb for the community. And uh, one of those is the International Careers Panel. Uh, give us a quick pitch of what that's about and uh, your experience with that. Yeah, we've done this for hmm, four years now, something like that. Somewhere in there. Somewhere yeah. in there. Um, and it's always a big hit. Um, what we like to do is highlight individuals that are mid-career or end-of-career professionals that have had really distinguished careers um, across the spectrum. Usually we have somebody in international law, we have somebody in security, we have somebody in business, sometimes an NGO or nonprofit. Um, usually somebody uh, in government or the State Department, and they just share their experiences, their wealth of knowledge uh, to students, but also to the broader community. Um, and we have this really rich dialogue about what their careers looked like, how they got there, what advice they would give to people who were interested in those types of careers and those types of opportunities. Um, and so it's a really, it's a really wonderful evening. Um, for that. So the first half, they just kind of explain um, their trajectories and how they got there. And then the second half of the night, uh, the whole auditorium is opened up for the um, audience to ask questions. And they usually have really insightful questions to ask. So we, we split this up between Belmont University mm -hmm. in the spring and Lipscomb University in the fall. And, and this past spring, we also added a road trip uh, career panel and went up to Cookville to Tennessee Tech. Uh, so when should we uh, expect to see the next iteration? So the next iteration is on October 22nd at Lipscomb, and we do it in the evening, 5.30 to 7.30, so that members of the community can also come, high school students can come, everyone is welcome, and that'll be at Lipscomb's campus. And for people who are interested in following that, if you go to our website, tnwac.org, and sign up for our newsletter, you'll see the announcements uh, bringing information on uh, the details for the International Careers Panel, as well as uh, our many other programs, uh, one of which I'll uh, mention today. Uh, in September, we have as our uh, distinguished visiting guest speaker, uh, Ambassador Christopher Hill. He's currently at the University of Denver, but uh, his uh, diplomatic career included an assignment as the Assistant Secretary of State for East Asian Pacific Affairs. He was the head of the delegation to the Six-Party Talks, uh, which dealt with North Korean nuclear weapons. Uh, he uh, also served as ambassador to South Korea, ambassador to Iraq, and several other countries. Uh, so he's bringing a wealth of diplomatic and national security uh, information with him. He'll be doing a town hall here at uh, Belmont University, uh, where we have uh, uh, our base of operations. Thanks to Belmont for hosting us. And that will be on September 9th. 
Again, you can uh, subscribe to our newsletter at tnwac.org to get information on that and many other things that your World Affairs Council is doing. And while there, please uh, sign up as a member or make a gift because that's how we uh, keep doing what we're doing, and we couldn't do it without you. Now, we'll be back in uh, just a minute with Dr. Susan Haynes, and we'll talk more about the global uh, strategic nuclear threat around the world. This is the Global Tennessee Podcast from the Tennessee World Affairs Council. You're listening to Global Tennessee from the World Affairs Council. We invite you to share your thoughts with us in email, info at tnwac.org. You can subscribe to the World Affairs Council newsletter on the website, tnwac.org. And you can like us on Facebook at Tennessee WAC, as well as follow us on Twitter at tnwac. Don't forget to tell your friends about Global Tennessee and the World Affairs Council. This podcast and other educational programs from the World Affairs Council are supported by you and our sponsors. Are you interested in supporting global affairs awareness in your community? Visit tnwac.org for more information. We're back. Today we're talking with Dr. Susan Haynes about the global nuclear weapons, uh, threats to uh, uh, mankind's existence, the existential threats that we're covering in uh, what we're calling the TikTok project from the Tennessee World Affairs Council. Uh, it'll be a year-long program dealing with both nuclear weapons uh, issues for the next six months, and then after the first of the year, we'll be talking with uh, uh, experts about uh, climate change and the existential threat uh, posed by that phenomenon. Uh, you can look for a discussion of these issues. Uh, they'll, they'll be on our programs, uh, not exclusively. We'll still be doing other hot topics and issues uh, that come up, uh, but uh, we will be devoting a lot of attention in our global town halls, our social media, our podcast, and elsewhere on uh, these uh, existential uh, issues for the, uh, the coming six months on nuclear issues and then after the new year on uh, climate change. Uh, again, we're here with uh, Professor Susan Haynes. She's an assistant uh, professor of political science at Lipscomb University. And we talked about uh, an overview of, of nuclear issues and the triads and philosophies and then uh, jumped into China and their nuclear program, uh, which is uh, Susan's specialty. She's the author of a book called Chinese Nuclear Proliferation, How Global Politics is Transforming China's Weapons Buildup and Modernization. But in that context, she's also an expert on uh, the global nuclear uh, landscape and, and what's going on. So we're going to turn to to Russia now. And, and most people, when they think of nuclear competition for the United States, recall the 70 years experience uh, that uh, we've had uh, during the Cold War and, and the period between in which uh, the United States and uh, the Soviet Union uh, were really the only powers uh, at the time that uh, – pose existential threats to uh, to one another. Uh, Susan, what, what should our listeners be reminded of uh, from the Cold War nuclear arms race? Uh, you know, what were some of the outcomes of diplomacy? And we had a couple of close calls uh, in, in the nuclear realm with, with the Soviet Union. Uh, but uh, bring us up to date with the context of what, what that was all about. Absolutely. Well, first I would say at the, the peak of the Cold War, you know, they had... Um, upwards over 10,000 you know, nuclear weapons in their arsenal each, which is just astronomical. Too um, many. Yeah, way too many. Um, and so sometimes people don't quite realize how high that number got 
Um, and, and it was just, it was skyrocketing, right? Because we were in an arms race, we were in a security dilemma, and it really hinged upon uh, both the United States and Soviet Union. Really, the, the Soviet Union kind of had this massive retaliation strategy, and the United States was trying to match them. Um, and a lot of misinformation about the capabilities of each power, um, and just trying to outmatch one another over and over again. And so that luckily was scaled back after um, after kind of realizing uh, the danger in that, but people kind of forget how high that number really got to. Now, and with that, with that really high number, we also now, have really the, close Now, those calls. high numbers that were not exclusively strategic uh, intercontinental weapons. Uh, uh, a lot of those were tactical nuclear weapons. Yeah, well, the, over the 10,000 was the strategic number. But okay. we also had, I mean, if you add the tactical, and I, I'm glad you mentioned that, because if you add that number in, it really soars. And a lot of the numbers that I'll be talking about later uh, with the nuclear posture review and things like that, they've really tried to limit just strategic weapons. So strategic would be long range, you know, intercontinental ballistic sure. missiles. Um, but then you have this whole other category of weapons, which are tactical weapons. Um, those were also very, very high. We didn't have published numbers on those like we do with strategic because of the arms agreements. Um, and at one point, you know, the United States had its tactical weapons um, in in Europe, and we kind of unilaterally, um, with in conjunction with Russia, but not because of a treaty, kind of scaled those back, um, and Russia scaled some of theirs back. But they still have a pretty sizable tactical nuclear arsenal, um, and those numbers aren't generally reported. Right. So those are in addition to the you know fifteen hundred. And a lot of them were sea-based weapons that were used for for naval uh, combat. Yeah, absolutely. So th when you add those numbers in. Um, I, I mean, it's, again, like off the charts yeah. <laughs> in terms of how many weapons um, each power had. And you think when you're talking about close calls, of course, the Cuban Missile Crisis comes into play, um, which was, you know, a, a very, very um, sensitive time in our nation's history and in, in the Cold War where we were very close to nuclear war. And it was diplomacy that helped prevent direct nuclear conflict. Um, but there's some other, you know, instances of just, when you have that many nuclear weapons, um, there's safety issues about just keeping them all, knowing where they all are right. <laughs> and knowing that they're all safe. Um, and there's a lot of different reports that are now coming out about some pretty close calls that we didn't even know of um, that might have even been, might have gotten us into an accidental nuclear war. Um, so both of those instances are, are reasons why lower numbers are better and more manageable, um, even if one doesn't believe in, you know, global zero, as some don't, mm -hmm. lower numbers are going to be more manageable because we've had all of these crises in those high number situations. Um, and when you're talking about that trajectory, talking about preventing confrontation, what else helped that? Um, so we did have, once there was a realization of just how out of hand this had gotten, right? Um, in the 1960s, um, after the Cuban Missile Crisis, there was this realization that there needed to be some kind of cooperation in, in scaling back these numbers and, and making a crisis like that not possible again. Um, and so with the United States and Russia specifically, we kind of started engaging in um, bilateral talks, which is 
um, one of these amazing case studies in international cooperation and in international law. Um, if somebody's a realist, it doesn't make any sense. Like, why in the world would these two countries kind of push pause? Um, but but those well, there were started, also yeah. uh, steps implemented, like the the hotline between Moscow and Washington, and and I think uh, over the through those experiences, the the two countries developed an understanding of of what the rules were. Yeah, that that some of these new nuclear powers, uh, for example, India and Pakistan, they have no no protocols or rules for dealing with one another in the realm of nuclear weapons, and for them, they're existential threats. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's one of the the huge contrasts with any kind of nuclear dyad nowadays versus the Cold War. The Cold War was was exceptional in a lot of different ways. Um, And the U.S.-Russian competition was unique in just how how many weapons there got to be. Um, But with that repeated interaction and communication, even if it was sometimes misinformation, there was communication. Also, you know, they were, you know, I think the the phrase is the two scorpions in a bottle kind of thing, but at least there's only two scorpions, right? Which right. is today, there's there's this whole host of scorpions that, um, that are kind of cascading on one another. And so this power, this nation's looking at over here, and then this one's looking over here as a threat, and then what this nation does for, you know, to counter another threat. So at least with the Cold War, you do have two powers. And they are reacting on one another, and there's not another player, which does make it, um, which simplifies things. And bilateral talks are obviously much, much uh, easier than multilateral talks. Um, and there was a sense of uh, stability uh, based on the survivability of some of the elements of, of each fo- each side's force. Yeah, absolutely. Once it became clear um, that strategic objectives could still be achieved with massive reduction, that you could still have strategic stability, you could still um, threaten destruction, um, that mutually assured destruction, that could still be in place if you scaled back um, uh, on par with one another. Now that, of course, is the tricky thing because you'd have to trust that that is what is happening. So they did have to build some modicum of trust in order for these agreements to go forward. Um, And that was trust was built by 1972 when they entered, well, actually, they concluded uh, the Strategic Arms Limitation Treaty uh, or talk agreements. Um, The talks then, that, those talks resulted in the um, Anti-Ballistic Missile Treaty. We also had to have the the Interim uh, Strategic Offensive uh, Force uh, Agreement there. And that kind of started it all, and that snowballed. We have some agreements that entered into force, some that did not. But we have had um, a sequence of, of pretty effective bilateral agreements since that time that have reduced. Uh, they've done a variety of things, in, in addition to reducing uh, number, we- number of weapons. So the Cold War ended. The wall mm-hmm. came, Berlin Wall came down, and in the 1990s, uh, what happened with uh, the nuclear weapons competition and strategies uh, between the United States and, and the f- now Russian Federation? Yeah, so um, the competition, uh, for all intents and purposes, ended, but the nuclear weapons most certainly stayed around. Um, and nobody wanted to get rid of them. They wanted no to reduce them. No plowshares were forged. Yes, no, no. Um, so we, we first have um, the Strategic Arms Limitation Treaty that, that 
froze the missiles and then we have um, our first reduction with what we call the SALT II treaty that started reducing um, those force levels on both sides but but that kind of got into a fray uh, with some geopolitical tensions and kind of um, petered out for lack of a better way of saying it then we enter into this what we call start and that's of course what we have the successor to uh, strategic arms uh, reduction treaty and that's where you see a huge reduction um, you see a reduction to um 1,600 delivery vehicles and 6,000 warheads. So it still it seems like an astronomical number, but that is really a lot less than. And of course, we're still talking strategic here. We're not right. talking and, tactical. And for our listeners, they, they should know that uh, some delivery vehicles are capable of carrying multiple warheads. Yes, that is absolutely true. So, and we'll talk about that with the nuclear posture review and things like that. But yes, so some missiles can be, uh, you know, equipped with multiple warheads, and so you. Um, so if you have a fewer 1,600 strategic nuclear delivery vehicles, 6,000 warheads, um, and you can have more in reserve, but those would be your kind of operational warheads, if you will. Um, so that was kind of our first agreement. Then we are now um, at the conclusion of our second agreement, which would be uh, what we call New Start. That was signed under Obama. And that brought us down to 1,550 warheads. And um, somewhere about, let's see, was it about 800 strategic nuclear delivery vehicles? I believe about 500 of those can be deployed. Um, so that's monstrous progress from the 10,000. Oh, sure. Um, yeah. At the peak of the Cold War, it's still a lot of warheads and a lot of delivery vehicles. Um, the other thing is, these are just the numbers. So a lot of people have qualms with. Um, the bilateral agreement, especially in the modern day, because you're not, again, you're not touching tactical weapons, which is a pretty big problem when you're talking about Russia, because they have so many, um, and they have more than the United States. And so if you leave those out, um, that can be problematic. But also, you don't, these agreements don't touch really modernization very much, or the quality of weapons. And so both Russia and the United States, while going down in numbers, are also modernizing their nuclear forces, um, creating new weapon systems, creating more capable weapon systems. So that's kind of one of those grievances that China kind of pokes at and says, yeah, you're going down, but these are not old systems. Your right. systems, the, the ones that you have, are more capable. Um, so you feel confident in going down because your the sophistication of your force is going up while the numbers are going down. So in terms of modernization, it's not just uh, restoring capability that that you had, but it's improving things like what accuracy and uh, uh, all the, kinds the of throw things. weight and uh, speed, throw weight, accuracy, the, the payload. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. So so uh, the same numbers um, give you more punch. Right. Exactly. Well, let's. Uh, you talked about modernization. Anything more to talk about Russian strategic nuclear force modernization? What what the threat is now, or what we're looking for? And, and we're gonna uh, we're gonna turn to the U.S. situation, modernization, and missile defense. Um, 
and uh, move the conversation along here. But uh, any last thoughts on the, the Russian program, uh, why we're concerned about where they're going in, in terms of their strategic forces? Yeah, I'll just say the, um, the State of the Union that Putin gave in March of 2018, where he had this huge screen behind him and he kind of debuted this these new nuclear technologies and it was... It's almost like a pyrotechnic show. It was it was crazy, um, and it was very you know he slammed his fist on the podium and said you know you didn't listen to us then you will listen to us now like you've made us do this and it was very reminiscent of kind of a Cold War uh, type mentality and that really got a lot of people's attention. Now the U.S. intelligence community, to my understanding, knew of these developments and we don't know you know quite how far along they are. Um, but it was a little alarming because these do, if they exist and if they are um, in in trials, which some of them uh, seem to be, they do represent new capabilities, like entirely new capabilities. So one is a, a nuclear torpedo that's able to rain uh, radioactive um, or, or shed radioactive rain down on a city. Um, and the other is... Uh, a nuclear-powered and nuclear-armed international um, intercontinental cruise missile, which is another one. And then, of course, hypersonic technology, which is kind of the buzz, military buzzword these days. Sure. Um, But again, vis-a-vis U.S. missile defense, they debuted that they were going to do a hypersonic glide vehicle. Um, All of those are very sophisticated projects. Um, Again, we don't know exactly how far along or when these systems will be deployed, um, but they're certainly not just reboots of old systems. Right. And and we've seen a return to some provocative uh, measures, a lot of uh, strategic uh, aircraft from the Russian uh, uh, Far East military district off the coast of Alaska and, and aircraft flying down the east coast of the U.S. and landing in Cuba and, and uh, Venezuela. Uh, so, are we back in the Cold War? I, I, that's kind of a rhetorical question. Or some people think we are. Some people think it might just be something else. Yeah, I think it, it is important to realize that, that that rhetoric doesn't stand alone. That there's actions with it. Um, right. You know, the bellicosity seems to be on both fronts. Um, I don't think I'd go as far to say the Cold War, but you know, it's definitely um, a, a hostile arena um, to look out for. Okay, just a reminder, uh, you're listening to Global Tennessee from the Tennessee World Affairs Council. I'm Patrick Ryan, and we're talking with uh, Professor Susan Haynes, uh, Assistant uh, Professor of Political Science at Lipscomb University. Uh, Got her Ph.D. at George Mason University, wrote a book called Chinese Nuclear Proliferation, How Global Politics is Transforming China's Weapons Buildup and Modernization. Uh, She is also a member of the board of the Tennessee World Affairs Council. And uh, you can uh, find out more information about Susan and her work uh, at TNWAC.org. She's listed among our board members uh, or, the I'm sure, the Lipscomb University uh, uh, website has a, a bio to get the details of, of her accomplishments. And we're talking with Susan about uh, nuclear issues, uh, the global strategic nuclear threats uh, posed these days, and, and we're going to close out with a conversation about the United States strategic nuclear weapons posture. Uh, tell us about uh, our forces. What what do we bring to the the table? Yeah, absolutely. So we have, of course, we have a triad, uh, meaning we have sea, land, and air based forces. Um, we because we signed New Start, we have one thousand five hundred and fifty warheads across 
800 strategic, strategic nuclear delivery vehicles. We also have tactical, but not anywhere near as many as Russia. And a lot of people critique that the United States is not really engaged in um, an arsenal-wide kind of modernization system or modernization effort, if you will. Um, that's kind of the big critique, and that's where uh, the Trump administration has kind of stepped in. Um, it, it's not really a completely valid critique because we certainly have modernized, um, but we haven't done a lot of like new capabilities and et cetera. We've really been focusing on missile defense. Um, and there was kind of a generation gap in the modernization. And so the nuclear posture review that was released in 2018 is, is pretty aggressive, for lack of a better uh, way of saying it. Um, there is, uh, Trump has committed to spending, I believe it's like 3.5% of the military defense on the nuclear program, whereas before we've kind of been between 1% and 2%. Um, and notably, he, uh, or the Nuclear Posture Review, rather, mentions both Russia and China as potential rivals. Um, and that's new language. That language was not used in previous Nuclear Posture Reviews. Um, previous reviews really focused on the threat posed by North Korea and Iran, kind of rogue states. Mm -hmm. They they focused there. They said, look, we're going to we're going to combat this. Um, but this brings us into new territory. This brings us into envisioning and preparing for great power conflict um, and and trying to combat that through modernization efforts. And isn't one of the uh, ideas in the mix a lower yield weapon which could be used um, but after having reached a lesser threshold than other nuclear release options? Yeah, so one of the things that got a lot of press was the lower yield or the tactical weapon, which foreseeably would um, make it easier to use a nuclear weapon because um, the decision would be less drastic in terms of consequences. So that's the idea. Um, and strategically, that aligns with that strategy of limited deterrence or flexible deterrence where you don't see nuclear weapons as a weapon that cannot be used. So minimum deterrence would say these are something that we have in our back pocket, but the their utility comes from their non-use. It's just us having them that protects us. But limited deterrence is like, no, you know, we can use these on the battlefield. Their utility comes from their use. And you know, we can end a conventional conflict. We can de-escalate something. We can stop something by using these. Um, and so tactical weapons are or, a part of that could, platform. Or it could bring the conflict into a whole new... Oh, absolutely. That's the whole critique of it, is that you use a tactical weapon. What stops the other person from using, or the other state from using a tactical weapon, right. uh, especially when you're talking about the, you know, the United States and Russia? So that's absolutely the critique, is that, you know, one side of the argument sees it as... A stabilizing weapon, um, and another one sees it as completely destabilizing. That once you use a nuclear weapon, you have entered into an arena, a nuclear war, that you cannot control. Right. Okay. Missile missile defense posture. You you mentioned missile defense. Uh, anything more you want to add um, uh, briefly? Yeah. So the missile defense uh, review came out after the nuclear posture review, um, quite delayed, and that was also. Um, pretty pretty drastic change from the previous administration. 
Um, most notably, missile defense has always been kind of put in the defensive arena, um, even though um, China and Russia always argue no, really your reason for missile defense is to give yourself a shield while you're developing a sh sword so that you have more option, more offensive options. Um, but the United States has repeated and repeated and repeatedly said, no, this is simply for our defense. It's just a shield. Um, so every other nuclear posture review really, again, uh, focused on Iran and North Korea, but missile defense review did as well. They said, this is for Iran and North Korea, period. Um, this one broke from that refrain. Um, and while not saying it explicitly, most certainly made the connection that's never before you know been made publicly about missile defense and preemptive strikes, um, the ability that missile defense allows for preemptive strikes. Right. And that is pretty alarming, or maybe it's just confirming to um, the cries of China and Russia who have already been uh, responding to that reality for the past 10 years. Well, I, I, I recall that uh, the initial ballistic missile defense organization and operations started during the Reagan administration, and it was uh, said to have contributed to Russian thinking that, you know, maybe we need to come to some conclusions on these issues. Is that is that accurate? Yeah, absolutely. So you can't really talk about nuclear weapons without talking about ballistic missile defense because, especially when you're talking about arms reductions, disarmament, and et cetera, because um, the United States has the most robust system by far. Um, and of course, it's a whole other conversation as to the effectiveness of said said system because it's not very effective. <laughs> right. It's like 50% uh, in terms of, you know, the ground-based mid-course uh, defense system. But regardless, the expectation is that it will get there. Um, our, our rivals or potential rivals have to consider that a distinct possibility. And when they do, the, the thing is defense is so much more expensive than offense. Um, it is it is astronomical how much we have spent on uh, ballistic missile defense, uh, and now we want to increase to 20 more anti-ballistic missiles at a tune of 20 billion dollars. Um, but it's it's a lot more economical to just surge your strategic weapons, and right now just surging the strategic weapons is you know, one of your best countermeasures. I mean, you can also do really small things like chaff and uh, metallicized balloons and things like that. But if you want kind of a surefire way, you just create more strategic missiles than what we can counter. Um, and we, we have- Overwhelm the defense. Yeah, overwhelm the defense. And, and that gets to your whole point about, you can also put a whole bunch of warheads on one missile and we don't have a way for to really combat that because we're trying to strike um, you know, one warhead, which is like hitting a bullet to a bullet, um, right. and it's really difficult to do. Okay, we're talking with uh, Professor Susan Haynes about uh, the existential threat posed by uh, global nuclear weapon inventories of the, the major powers, and um, one of the uh, issues that has come up in conversation, and we're, we're about to close out here, but I just wanted to uh, ask your thoughts on the nuclear command and control issue. It's been a topic of occasional conversation, and it gets into the political realm. Uh, but uh, there have been criticisms of the way the system is set up in that one person is the sole authority for the release of nuclear weapons from our inventory in the United States. 
and there has been talk about Congress taking uh, legislative action that uh, there could be no first use without uh, concurrent authority from some other level of management. But uh, right now, the uh, the president of the United States is the sole authority for releasing nuclear weapons, and that's been a concern among some people in recent years. What what uh, how does that system work, and what what concerns should we have? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I went over this this year with my American government students and foreign policy, and everybody's kind of aghast. They thought, like, surely this isn't really how it works. It, it um, should be a team sport. Yeah, and I'm like, no, no, this is really how it works. Now, there's a lot of people involved in that command, but the authority rests with the president of the United States, period. And there can be dissent, um, but it does not matter because there is enough people in that chain that sure if somebody says i'm not going to do this uh, you know they're they're breaking the chain of command but it, it will still get done um and so it it is a alarming prospect for sure to have one authority um within one individual and all those people while they could potentially dissent it it does not matter um it will get done and um, so I think that calls for reviewing that system are prudent and wise, regardless of who the president is. I mean, I know there's a lot of alarm uh, concerning Trump and his rhetoric and his behavior. Um, but I think regardless, putting all of that power in the hand of one individual is, is not as wise. Now, it doesn't have to be a deliberative measure. Like, I understand the need for, um, for speed in that decision process in some situations. So you're not going to have a deliberative body or something of that nature, but it does, and in my view, it needs to be out of the hands of just that one individual. Um, There needs to be a few more checks on that. Well, we've been talking with uh, Professor Susan Haynes from Lipscomb University about uh, the existential threat of nuclear weapons. Now we've covered a lot of ground. Um, We talked about the uh, weapons philosophies and the triad and all the definitions, mutually assured destruction, uh, her forte, which is China's nuclear weapon modernization, but also uh, Russia and the United States, our nuclear posture and missile defense. And we've really covered a lot of territory. Um, any any last uh, takeaways that our listeners should have about uh, nuclear weapons? It's, it's, it's hardly a an exciting topic, but it's certainly something that everybody should be aware of these issues because um, low probability, high high consequence. Uh, there's there's no more higher magnitude of of consequence to the use of of nuclear weapons, even in a limited way uh, in the world. But certainly, the uh, the capability of of the major nuclear powers uh, it it, uh, it really defines what the word existential is all about. Yeah, absolutely. And I, of course, I, I'm i biased. I think it's a very exciting topic. I've heard a book on it. I, I dedicate my life to it. I, I, think it's I very stand exciting. corrected. I think it's the most exciting uh, topic that there is. So, um, But I, I will say that there's so many different facets of it. You know, you have rogue regimes. Um, I mentioned before how terrorism kind of uh, can be, can overshadow this issue, but those two things are intimately connected because terrorists getting a hold of uh, weapons of mass destruction. I mean, that was a whole lead into the Iraq war, right? So, you know, these things are connected. Uh, the capacity of, you know, um, an Iranian leader, a North Korean leader, like giving them to terrorists, like these are all things that 
are interconnected and pivotal. And then you start talking about, again, rogue regimes, you talk about terrorism, you talk about um, the great powers, which are increasingly aggressive in ways that we didn't expect. Russia into the Caucasus, China into the seas, um, and these are nuclear armed powers. And so I just don't think it is an irrelevant topic at all. I think it's increasingly relevant, increasingly important, um, and increasingly exciting. (laughs) I'll I'll, uh, second that as uh, someone who's in my Navy career, been aboard a uh, ballistic missile submarine and involved at various uh, points in command and control in the Navy. I, I was uh, always uh, taken with the topic as being of utmost concern and uh, and relevant. So uh, thank you for uh, for joining us today. And, and you know, you, you mentioned uh, Korea and Iran. Uh, as part of our conversation in the next few months about uh, nuclear weapons and the threat they pose. Uh, we have uh, some specialists who are coming to Nashville to talk to our global town hall meetings uh, and other groups. Uh, again, in September, on September 9th, we'll have a global town hall with Ambassador Christopher Hill, who was the uh, head of the six-party talks on North Korean nuclear uh, disarmament uh, back in the day, which is the forerunner for the current effort uh, to denuclearize the Korean Peninsula. So Ambassador Hill, uh, who was also the Assistant Secretary of State for East Asian and Pacific Affairs, will be with us on September 9th. Uh, look for that on our uh, calendar at tnwac.org. In November uh, the 18th, I believe it is, uh, Monday of, uh, of that week, uh, Dr. Paul Pilar will be uh, in Nashville uh, as a guest of our Distinguished Visiting Speaker Program. And Dr. Pilar is a uh, retired uh, CIA officer. He was the head of the CIA's Counterterrorism Center in the 90s. He was also assistant, uh, an executive assistant to the director of the Central Intelligence Agency. He's a uh, Princeton-educated Ph.D., who uh, teaches in Washington at Georgetown University. He's a prolific uh, writer of things on the Middle East. Uh, He's got background in Iraq and uh, weapons of mass destruction, and his current writings and conversations uh, focus to a great extent on Iran and their nuclear program and the confrontation between the United States uh, and Iran over the nuclear deal and and other regional issues. So look for those two uh, distinguished speakers on our calendar uh, and many other programs as part of the TikTok project where we look at existential threats uh, that face the United States. Again, uh, thanks to Professor Susan Haynes for joining us today, and uh, we uh, look forward to the International Careers Panel. Uh, so thanks, Susan, for, uh, for being here today. Thank you for having me. And that's it for Global Tennessee. Uh, we appreciate uh, you listening. If you leave a review at soundcloud.com slash TNWAC, we appreciate that. Please tell your friends and neighbors and colleagues about uh, the Global Tennessee podcast. And also look for Global Nashville with Carl Dean, uh, one of our uh, umbrella, uh, under the umbrella of the Global Tennessee podcast, a project that former Mayor Dean uh, has with uh, the World Affairs Council. So all those things are at tnwac.org, along with membership and an opportunity to donate to the council. And we appreciate your support. Thanks. That's it for today. And uh, we'll see you next time. This has been Global Tennessee from the World Affairs Council in cooperation with the Center for International Business at Belmont University and the International Business Council of the Nashville Area Chamber of Commerce. The executive producer of Global Tennessee is Patrick Ryan, senior producer Logan Monday, technical advisor Bill Ryan, and the voice of Global Tennessee as well as the Penn Jones Conspiracy. I'm Benjamin Olson.
visit tnwac.org slash podcast for more information. 